You're listening to Cultivate Curiosity, a podcast that inspires the next generation to stay curious. Cultivate Curiosity is brought to you by the Emerald Coast Science Center, a nonprofit interactive science museum and STEAM educational facility in Fort Long Beach, Florida. This podcast is perfect for anyone curious about the world we live in because you never know what we'll talk about next. Hi, my name is JC and I'm the social media coordinator at the Emerald Coast Science Center. Hi, my name's Harley. I'm an educator and the community affairs coordinator at the Emerald Coast Science Center. Hi, I'm Diane and I'm the director. Today we're going to talk about natural history museums. In the heart of cities worldwide, monumental buildings stand as gateways to the wonders of our planet's past and present, the natural history museums. These institutions serve as repositories of knowledge and housing collections that span millennia and encompass the diversity of life on Earth. Natural history museums offer a window into the intricate tapestry of our world's ecosystems and evolutionary history, from the tiniest microbes to the mightiest dinosaurs. The roots of natural history museums trace back to the Renaissance era, when private collectors assembled cabinets of curiosities filled with exotic specimens and artifacts from distant lands. These early collections often blended fact with fiction, showcasing genuine natural wonders and imaginative creations. However, in the 17th century, the concept of the modern natural history museum began to take shape, with institutions like the National Museum of Natural History in Paris leading the way. Over time, these museums evolved from exclusive domains of scholars to welcoming spaces accessible to the general public, exemplified by the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. The evolution of natural history museums played a significant role in the emergence of science museums. Natural history museums traditionally focused on the collection, preservation, and display of specimens related to the natural world, including fossils, minerals, plants, and animals. Over time, these institutions expanded their educational outreach efforts to engage broader audiences beyond the scientific community. As natural history museums began to incorporate interactive exhibits, educational programs, and hands-on activities, they paved the way for the development of science museums. These new institutions aimed to foster curiosity and exploration across various scientific disciplines, including physics, chemistry, astronomy, and technology, in addition to natural history. Science museums offer immersive experiences and interactive exhibits designed to inspire visitors of all ages to explore the wonders of science and technology. They provide opportunities for hands-on learning, experimentation, and discovery, fostering a deeper understanding of scientific principles and their real-world applications. Moreover, the success of natural history museums in attracting public interest and support demonstrated the potential for science museums to serve as a dynamic educational resource and community hubs. As a result, science museums begin to proliferate, offering diverse exhibits and programs to engage visitors in the process of scientific inquiry and discovery. These institutions continue to play a vital role in inspiring curiosity, promoting scientific literacy, and fostering a deeper appreciation for the natural world and the principles that govern it. Which we actually have some curiosity cabinets. They're kind of doing a little bit of a remodel right now. So that's really cool that we have something that was in the Renaissance era. We also have our taxidermy black bear Alcor. So that kind of pays homage to natural history museums and how they have the taxidermy animals. Taxidermy everything, yeah. pretty much. I know. Yeah, that's kind of like a natural history thing mm-hmm. is the collection of taxidermy animals. And I think that one of the ways that we're trying to do that is to, to be a little bit of both, you know, have a little bit of natural history here and then also have the hands-on experimentation and discovery portion as well. I think one of the museums that does that really, really well is the California Academy of Science in San Francisco. And that is an incredible 
incredible, incredible museum. Um, I highly recommend it. There is also a hands-on museum in San Francisco called the Exploratorium, but the California Academy of Sciences is worth a visit if you're in that area. There is also a natural history museum in L.A. that is such a popular natural history museum. The other podcast that I listen to, Ologies, she has interviewed a lot of people that work at the LA County Natural History Museum. So they have like a huge collections department for all different areas of insects, bears, big cats, all of it. So when that kind of goes to the thing about what a natural history museum kind of straddles two different areas one is the public facing part of it which is the exhibits and then there's a research part of it as well so they actually have scientists on staff that are actively researching and collecting information and you know working behind the scenes on the actual exhibits that they have so it's a curation for the public view but then it also it's a research portion to understand the place of those animals in the world and their biodiversity that's one of the biggest things is Mm -hmm. how different are all of these animals in the world. So let's take a glimpse into the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Among the pantheon of natural history museums, one stands out as an epitome of exploration and discovery, the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Spanning an area larger than 18 football fields, this iconic institution houses the world's largest natural history collection, comprising millions of specimens and artifacts. Within its hollowed halls, visitors embark on a journey through time, unraveling the mysteries of Earth's geological past, the evolution of life, and the interconnectedness of ecosystems. From the Hope Diamond to the towering Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton, each exhibit beckons with stories waiting to be uncovered. But... You don't have to travel all the way to Washington, D.C., if you're listening to this from Florida, to see a marvelous natural history museum. Located on the picturesque campus of the University of Florida in Gainesville is the Florida Museum of Natural History. Yes, go Gators. And this stands as a beacon of scientific discovery and educational excellence. Founded in 1891, this esteemed institution boasts one of the largest collections of natural history specimens in the southeastern United States, including fossils, minerals, plants, and animals. Its diverse array of permanent and temporary exhibits offers visitors a captivating journey through the rich biodiversity and cultural heritage of Florida and beyond. With a dedicated team of researchers, educators, and volunteers, the museum serves as a hub for interdisciplinary research, public outreach, and community engagement, inspiring curiosity and fostering a deeper appreciation for the natural world among visitors of all ages. Whether exploring prehistoric fossils or learning about the conservation of endangered species, the Florida Museum of Natural History offers an immersive and enlightening experience for all who walk through the doors. Whenever I was there in college, you can get in for free if you're a student. So you can just show your student ID and walk in there and explore around. And it is very calming. There's lots of seats in there, too, where you can just go in and relax if you want to get away from everyone. I think on their website, I was saying it's free except for like the butterfly. Yep. That's yeah, the, the only thing you would have to pay for. The butterfly exhibit or butterfly rainforest exhibit. Yeah, yeah, you have to walk in and you pay for that. I But I believe it was free whenever I went there, too. For just, like, anyone mm-hmm. to come in? Okay. Yeah, but it's beautiful. Like, everything is curated. Amazing. And they also have what I think is super cool, and it's probably at a lot of other natural history museums. They have, like, an area where you can watch the people who are doing the curating. Mm, that's cool. And, like, 
it makes them look like an exhibit, which <laughs> is probably not super fun for them, but it is very interesting to see how they do the specific curating. And it was mostly the insects that they were doing, because I mm-hmm. assume that if it was like mammals or big cats, I would probably be a little bit more intensive and maybe not super welcoming for the public eye. Yeah. But it was very cool. I liked it a lot. And I assume they probably have like students who help do research and stuff like that Mm -hmm. probably too since they're on the campus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen it at other museums like the paleontology section. They'll be in there working on like dinosaur Mm -hmm. fossils and stuff like that and you'll be walking by and you can see them in there, you know, with their microscopes or their... Dusting things off. Yeah, dusting (laughs) things off or things like that. So I picked this topic this week because I recently did a big trip Mm -hmm. and visited a lot of different natural history museums in Europe. And so I was, I, I told JC, I said, let's talk about natural history museums. <laughs> which and is great because they were the forefront of science museums. Exactly. Which is exactly. And that's kind of where the whole thing started out. So in the course of our travels in last month, we went to the London Museum of Natural History, which is kind of like one of the granddaddies of natural history museums. A huge collection of dinosaurs. And I, and I will tell you what, Europeans love geology. Mm-hmm. They love their minerals. I mean, the mineral and geology section in, in each of the museums that I visited was tremendously huge. I mean, it was really, really huge. A great dinosaur exhibit in the London Museum. And there was a little sign that said, meet here for our women in science walk. And I was like, oh, how cool is that? So of course, they didn't have it at the time that Mm -hmm. I was there. But they had like a little walk that you could go through because a lot of natural history museums were built in the time when science was done by a lot of men. But they had a special walk that you could sign up for. And they would show you the different women that were highlighted within the museum, which I thought was really, really great and sort of was the springboard for the idea of our Pinot and Pioneers event on March 14th here at the Science Center. And then... Well, of course, also in Europe, some of these buildings are in castles. Uh, Some of these museums are in castles, like the Museum of Natural History in Vienna. It's actually in an incredibly beautiful, beautiful castle, which is, I can't even tell you how tall that building is and the the atrium part is, and it just opens all the way up to the ceiling. So that was incredibly beautiful. So you're awed by the building, and then you're awed by the amount of history that's there, the number of years that they've been doing these collections. So Vienna is one of the oldest zoos in Europe and it is at the Summer Palace which is where the Habsburg dynasty you know this is where they were located and they ran Europe for a really really long time so I thought was really interesting because they had this rhinoceros that they had originally tried to send over to put into the zoo but in transit the animal passed away so when it arrived in Vienna instead of you know it being homed in the zoo because it was dead they taxidermied it and it was in the museum the museum of natural history so they had like a little sign that had explained you know how this rhinoceros had came to be in the museum of natural history originally it was supposed to go to the zoo and then we went to budapest and their natural history museum now remember that hungary was after world war ii became part of the was under communist rule so they had an uprising in 1956 and that Natural History Museum had explosive devices that had been thrown into it and had caught fire. So they lost a lot of their collections, but obviously they're in a new location now. And if you walk in, they have a huge fin whale skeleton, which is like right in the entryway. There's a sign that says, if you see like the scorch marks Mm -hmm. on the jawbone of the fin whale, that's because 
of the fires because the fire in 1956 so i just thought that was absolutely fascinating and then when we were talking about natural history museums starting out as like uh personal collections of you know in the in the renaissance and these people started collecting items of course we have a lot of you know travel around the world and people are bringing back specimens in ljubljana slovenia and then also in verona italy they have you know some natural history museums there that i also visited both of those had started out as like individuals personal collections and then they had been turned into you know natural history museums and and both of them focused a lot on like their local ecosystems Mm -hmm. so especially in geology part and things like that so it's just interesting to see the differences in the way the museums are organized we're going to dig into the Linnaean system in just a minute and you know that sort of goes like some of them the collections were done by you know the Linnaean system some of them were done by their ecosystem so like this group these are the animals that live in the tundra these are the animals that would live in you know the savanna and they put all of their you know animals together that way other ones do these are all the big cats these are all the apes so it's just interesting to sort of see that as you move through these different natural history museums as well we went over to one of the natural history museums in Ireland. They had a bunch of different ones. It was in Dublin. And my favorite thing to see in there was the Irish worms. They had them all in a jar ready to like look at, but that was how they decided to put them in a group was that they're the Irish worms. Like this is where you're going to see them. Really weird to look at, but I liked the ecosystem part of it and that you can only find it there because that's what's going to keep people going to natural history museums is not being able to see the same thing at every single one. It's seeing like how those animals live in that ecosystem over there, but also maybe how they live in an ecosystem similar across the world. I looked up like the biggest, you know, most famous natural history museums and London, Vienna and Dublin Mm -hmm. were all in you know, Europe. And then, of course, the American Museum of Natural History in New York and the Smithsonian and the one in Los Angeles were like Mm -hmm. the top ones in the United States as far as like natural history museums. So what's the role of a natural history museum? At the core of every natural history museum lies a commitment to stewardship and conservation. These institutions serve as custodians of Earth's biodiversity, safeguarding rare and endangered species for future generations. Through scientific research and public education initiatives, museums contribute to our understanding of the natural world and advocate for its protection. Moreover, they foster collaborations with academic institutions and governmental organizations, driving innovations in fields ranging from taxonomy to climate science. So now let's talk about the Linnaean classification system. Central to the mission of natural history museums is the Linnaean classification system, named after the pioneering taxonomist, Carolus Linnaeus. Linnaeus. (laughs) (laughs) This system, based on hierarchical classification and binomial nomenclature, provides a standardized framework for naming and categorizing species. By organizing specimens according to Linnaean principles, museums facilitate research, enable species identification, and promote the sharing of knowledge across disciplines. Doing so, they honor Linnaeus's legacy and perpetuate a tradition of scientific inquiry that spans centuries. So to start out with, Linnaean used Latin terms. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a lot of mispronunciation (laughs) as we sort of kind of lay out what the Linnaean system looks like, you know, because I am... Don't speak Latin. Yes. <laughs> and don't judge. Yeah. You probably couldn't pronounce it either. <laughs> the Linnaean system of classification, devised by Carolus Linnaeus in the 18th century, is a bedrock of modern taxonomy. At its core, the system organizes living organisms into hierarchical ca- categories based on shared characteristics and evolutionary relationships. 
Starting with the broadest category, the kingdom, organisms are progressively classified into phyla, classes, orders, families, genera, and species. For instance, consider the classification of a domestic dog, Canis familiaris. It belongs to the kingdom Animalia, the phylum Chordata, which includes animal with spinal cords, class Mammalia, mammals, order Carnivoria, which is carnivores, family Canidae, dogs, wolves, foxes, genus Canis, true dogs, and species Familiaris, domestic dog. Similarly, the classification of a bald eagle would be Haleus leucocephalus, follows a similar pattern. Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, class Aves, which is birds, order Actapitriformes, birds of prey, family Actapitridae, hawks, eagles, genus Halaitis, sea eagles, species Leucocephalus, bald eagle. By systematically categorizing organisms in this manner, the Linnaean system provides a universal language for biologists to communicate and understand the diversity of life on Earth. Linnaeus's groundbreaking method of binomial nomenclature stands as a cornerstone of modern biology, revolutionizing the way species are named and classified. Through this system, each organism is assigned a distinctive two-word Latin name comprising the genus and species epitheth. Take, for instance, the example of Homo sapiens, which denotes humans. Here, Homo refers to the genus encompassing modern humans and their close relatives, while sapiens signifies the species. This approach not only provides a standardized and universally understood means of identification, but also encapsulates key characteristics or traits of the species, much like a person's first and last name. The combination of genus and species names serves to precisely pinpoint and differentiate among organisms. So, but not only is there a different name for each level of the system, some of them also are capitalized, and some of them are also lowercase, and some of them are also supposed to be italicized. Yes. <laughs> it's supposed to be written in such a specific way when you're putting things into their correct binomial and I'm nomenclature. I'm sure there's like abbreviations and stuff like that yep. too. That it's like, uh. yeah. Well, it's like the it's a across the board system, so everybody in the whole entire world uses this system mm -hmm. yeah. so that way it's easy for scientists in different locations to you know look up information and mm -hmm. to share information which is also very important because a lot of times common names can be anything mm -hmm. Corn, like a dog corn snake a... red rat snake like a lot of those are common names and those mm -hmm. are typically used interchangeably but like the specific scientific name is going to be specific for that species That's so i think true. why a lot of people call things by their common names specifically for plants it's wild oh, for yeah. plants there's like co <laughs> 10 common names for one type of plant and it's like well which one are you talking yeah, about yeah <laughs> which one <laughs> The Linnaean system provided a foundational framework for understanding the diversity of life on Earth. However, as scientific knowledge advanced and new discoveries unfolded, it became apparent that revisions to Linnaean hierarchy were necessary to accommodate these findings. One significant modification was the introduction of a higher taxonomic rank known as the domain. Unlike traditional categories like kingdom, the domain represents a broader and more inclusive classification encompassing multiple kingdoms. Three primary domains now recognized by most biologists are bacteria, archaea and eukaryota. Bacteria and archaea compromise single-celled prokaryotic organisms, while eukaryota encompasses a vast array of eukaryotic life forms ranging from unicellular protists to complex multicellular organisms like plants, animals, and fungi. This restructuring reflects insights 
gleaned from molecular biology and phylogenetic analysis, which have illuminated the evolutionary relationships among different organisms. By integrating these new taxonomic insights, scientists can more accurately map the tree of life and elucidate the shared ancestry and diversity of living organisms on our planet. This is taking me back to seventh grade. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I know I also have heard people talk about, well, now that we have DNA, is -hmm. it better, you know, for us to just do DNA analysis and then change the classification system, you know, based on DNA instead of based on the Linnaean system? Oh, like who has the closest Mm -hmm. DNA to each other? (laughs) But no, it's just it's just an interesting conversation for you know future generations Mm -hmm. to sort of you Mm -hmm. know take on. So that's very interesting. Well, we already talked about it earlier, but as you mentioned, some natural history museums use the Linnaean system to kind of uh, organize their mm-hmm. collections, and then sometimes they'll use those ecosystems or habitats. Yeah, so it's just really interesting to see the difference. I did have one really, really unique experience at the Natural History Museum in Budapest, which is actually a beautiful museum. And they they do it based on ecosystems is how they have their animals arranged there. But they had, at the end of the building what looked like Noah's Ark. And they had, like, the animals, like, some of the animals were lined up along the side of the wall like they were going to go on Noah's Ark. Uh And I thought this is so interesting, especially since this was, you know, coming from a country that had been communist for a number of years. Then once you got inside the Ark, because it was, you know, just the end of the building width wide and you had an entrance and you walked through and then you came out the exit on the other end. They had animals in there as well behind like a rope netting. So it was like these animals had already entered the ark area. But interestingly enough on there, it talked about biodiversity, you know, in all of the signage and everything. But I just thought, wow, that was just uh, like a a unique way way of 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 approaching that. And, you know, I, yeah, I just shook my head and was like, okay, there we go. That's yeah. something new. And I thought you had sent me that photo. I was looking for it. Oh, I yeah. Well, it. I showed it to you. Yeah. I showed you the photos. It's, of... it's something. Yeah. So it was just, you know, not something I guess that you... it grabs your attention at least. Well, very much so because I'm still talking about it. Yeah. And I'm still just, huh, that's, that's something. And we also use binomial nomenclature in our signs because all of our animals have their scientific name as well as their common name on there. So if you ever want to know what the different species are for our animals, we'll have that on their signs for you. Come practice your Latin. Yes. <laughs> and you can learn the difference between a rat snake and a corn snake species. Mm-hmm. Even though people still call them like the same, the same mm-hmm. or get them like easily confused. It's like, wait, no, no, no. You're... Yeah. They look, unfortunately, <laughs> almost yeah. exactly yeah. the same. Mm-hmm. So... Looking ahead at some potential challenges and opportunities, as we stand on the precipice of a new era marked by rapid environmental change, the role of natural history museums has never been more vital. However, these institutions face a myriad of challenges from funding constraints to the imperative to adapt to digital technologies. Yet within these challenges lie opportunities for innovation and collaboration. By harnessing the power of technology, expanding global partnerships, and engaging with diverse communities, natural history museums can continue to inspire curiosity, foster discovery, and advocate for the preservation of Earth's precious heritage. So I know we mentioned this before, but I know a lot of natural history museums don't just contain like animal collections. They also have a cultural aspect to them as well. You know, like if you go to the American Museum of Natural History in New York, they have a huge Egyptian section. They have sections on indigenous people, depending from different places all around the world. And so a lot of them now are really looking at the stories that they tell inside of those collections. A lot of them are also 
looking at repatriation. So this is where, you know, how did we come upon all of these Egyptian artifacts? Were they straight up just stolen out of Egypt? So I think that this is something that is, is going to be a challenge for museums moving forward. You know, I know some of the Egyptian government is like, hey, we'd like our stuff back now. <laughs> but, but I think the reason why that they have those is so that people that were never going to make it to Egypt would have some understanding of what historically it looked like. Because we all, our, our culture is so wrapped up and it comes out of Greece and it comes out of, you know, Roman times and it comes out of Egyptian times. And this was just a way to showcase what that history looked like so that we can understand part of the way of why we are the way we are now is because of the influences of those, you know, historical cultures. So it's going to be interesting to sort of see how it plays out. This is sort of not necessarily new, but something that is actually actively being pursued in the broader museum industry as a whole. So, in the grand tapestry of human civilizations, natural history museums emerge as beacons of knowledge, enlightenment, and wonder. They invite us to bark on a journey of exploration, to delve into the depths of time and space, and to marvel at the beauty and complexity of life on Earth. Let's embrace the invaluable contributions of these institutions, cherishing them as guardians of our planet's diversity and stewards of its legacy for generations to come. So that's all we have for this episode of Cultivate Curiosity. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cultivate Curiosity. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at socialmedia at ecscience.org. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks.